Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for Gravitas. My guest today sits on the executive leadership team of Flex, a $25 billion company with over 150,000 employees globally. Flex is a supply chain solutions company encompassing design, manufacturing, logistics, and supply chain solutions. My guest is Paul Humphreys, Group President of the High Reliability Solutions Business for Flex, covering both automotive, medical, and industrial. That's the official title. Here's the real story. I've known Paul for over 33 years. He's a fellow countryman. He's a proud Welshman, a Llanelli boy who did very well for himself both in business and in life. He was my first boss and later a mentor, having significant impact and influence in my leadership style and my life over the past three decades. He is without question an authentic leader. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Nice to be here. <laughs> Can you believe that we're sitting here? Uh, you know, here? it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> Detroit, Michigan. Know, when you started off as a 19-year-old assistant, I never thought we'd be doing this. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Sending telexes in Borg Warner in the purchasing department, Incredible. right? Incredible. <laughs> and here we are. So, Paul, what is your story? So, as you know, I grew up in Wales in a working class town, Llanelli, which is known for its steelworks and its rugby teams. And uh, my father was an electrician in the steelworks. My mother actually stayed at home and looked, looked after us as kids. And you know, I wasn't the best student. I was probably known as the mischievous student. I was in trouble, never with the police, thankfully, but I was in trouble with my teachers and everybody else. Um, but I went to what was called Llanelli Technical Grammar School. Um, you know, went through, did my O levels and A levels there, um, and then moved on to university where I studied applied social studies. And so you know, I had this view that I needed to leverage that capability, but not as a social worker. I always had an interest in business. And so I thought probably the most obvious career would be getting into HR. Um, so that essentially was the sort of direction of my career. But actually, my first job was with Ford in supply chain. Um, I worked for Ford for 18 months. I actually hated it, to be perfectly frank. Not so much the company, but I didn't like the job. It really wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, so then I went back to school and I did uh, 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 qualification in human resource management and started my career with Borg Warner in human resources. Uh, I was in human resources with Borg Warner from 1979 to something like 1983. And then I took on 
additional responsibility for purchasing, and then I took on responsibility for some of the technical departments, and I moved into operations, and eventually a program management before moving to the States in 89. I moved to Detroit, uh, to Sterling Heights, actually, is where I, where I worked, and I, I lived in, in uh, Rochester Hills. Started off as program manager for a big uh, launch of a new program for Allison Transmission, but before long, I had human resources back, so I, I was ending up uh, running human resources as well as program management, and then ultimately became the general manager for that business. Um, you know, moved on, went out and tried to be an entrepreneur, and I say tried because I failed miserably. Uh, I moved out to, to Oregon, uh, and then eventually moved back to the UK, worked for Allied Signal um, in automotive, uh, and eventually you know, transitioned back to the US working for Flex, and I've been now at Flex 20 years I started off in, in global operations, uh, running all the mechanicals business for Flex. And then actually I ran human resources for six years. So, you know, it was a pretty big human resource job. We had over 200,000 people. We were in 34 different countries, 100 facilities. And the biggest HR job I'd ever had before that was for like 1,200 people. Uh, so it was quite a step up, but I basically had the chance to, to create an HR function at Flex. Um, and then after doing that for six years, moved into the role I'm in now, which is running a business for medical automotive. And more recently, I've taken on the industrial business. So it's about a $10.5 billion business. And we serve you know, all the sort of major OEMs in industrial automotive and the medical space. So that's basically my story. I've also got a, a wife and, and two kids, um, both of whom now my kids are here in, in, in the States. My son lives in San Francisco. My daughter lives down in L.A., and my wife has tolerated me for, it'll be my 38th wedding anniversary this year. She's tolerated me that long, uh, and hopefully we'll see a few more years beyond that, too. So living in, living in uh, San Jose, in the Silicon Valley, having a whale of a time. That's great. Coming from a small town in Wales, from Llanelli, to the position that you hold today. You've obviously learned a thing or two, and you know a thing or two about leadership, you have a reputation for being an authentic leader, but that's such a broad term. What does that really mean to you? What is authentic leadership to you, Paul? You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, my mother always used to say, because she felt I had potential, uh, that I needed to, you know, adapt my style or maybe go for elocution lessons or, um, you know, try and, and become a little bit more sophisticated. Um, and I always used to say, you know, if I can't be myself, and succeed being myself, then I don't want to succeed. Um, and so for me, it's just being, it's really about being yourself, being who you are, being true to yourself, and also other people seeing who you are, and, and you're true to them as well. And so for me, authentic leadership is, is not about necessarily a style of leadership, more than it's about people knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for, knowing if you say something, you intend to deliver on it, right? It's about being honest, it's about having integrity, and it's also in delivering on what you say. You know, I think the, the other part of it too is, you know, leaders oftentimes don't want to admit or acknowledge that they make mistakes, but every leader makes a mistake. You know, if you're making decisions, if you're not making a mistake often enough, then you're probably not making enough decisions. So it's being open to being criti critique, criticized, being challenged, and, and admitting when you're wrong, you're wrong, and being able to do that without you know, fear of embarrassment or fear of seeing to be weak or exposing yourself. Uh, you know, I used to uh, have a saying with my team, and I won't use the appropriate saying. I won't use the inappropriate saying, but I used to say the Paul Humphrey screw-ups. 
So, you know, there were decisions that I made that I realised in retrospect were wrong, and I used to call them PHS, Paul Humphrey screw-ups, because I wanted the team to know that I was willing to accept my mistakes, willing to acknowledge them. And there's nothing wrong with making decisions and making mistakes, but at least own up to them and don't try and cover up. And by doing that, of course, you showed vulnerability and you made them feel safe. You essentially gave them permission to do the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. In the automotive industry, um, as you well know, uh, it's there's a lot of judgment and fear. And I think that leaders today coming up in automotive struggle with this idea of vulnerability. Um, what advice would you give a young leader coming up in automotive today, how to embrace this idea of vulnerability? I, I think everybody has their vulnerabilities. Nobody's perfect, right? And even if you admit to them or not, people recognize that they have them. Mm-hmm. And, and so you may, you're only fooling yourself. You're not actually fooling anyone else. And so what happens is, is you may not be talking to them about it, but they're talking to each other about it. So there's no harm in acknowledging that, that, you know, that you're not perfect, that you have your vulnerabilities, you have your weaknesses. And if you're honest with the people that work for you and share them, I think they respect you more for it. Yeah, and it is actually a sign of strength more than it is a weakness. We yeah, often hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if it's handled right, yeah. yeah. No, I would, I would absolutely agree with you. So we talk about gravitas as being the hallmark or the ultimate trait of authentic leadership. What is that to you? What's that ultimate trait of authentic leadership? You know, I think the the most important thing for me about leadership is being inclusive, being engaging, being supportive. And you know me pretty well, also being humorous, but at the same time, holding people accountable. So people know that when you ask them to do something, it's something that you're going to help them to be successful at doing. You're not going to just let them hang out there and you know fail. You're going to do everything you can to support them. But you still have expectations. You expect them to deliver. And to me, the, them knowing that is a sign of what I consider to be authentic leadership. People know what the expectations are. You give them clarity. You give them purpose. But then you hold them accountable for doing it. But they know that you support them in the event that they're failing. Yeah, and this I know to be true of you. And I will take you back to a situation. I don't know if you remember this, but I'm going back many, many years when I worked for you at Borg Warner. And you had this great idea. You thought it would be wonderful for me to have experience in indirect purchasing in the tool crib on third shift. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. And you said, yes, you need to go and work in third <laughs> shift. I was a 20-something <laughs> young girl. And uh, you threw me out there. And back then, you know, that was in the 80s. It was a different world out on the shop floor than it is today. But I always knew, even though sometimes I couldn't see where you were going or why you were doing it, sometimes I wasn't 100% sure, but I always knew I was safe and that you had a plan and that you had my back. Always, always knew that. And, And that to me is one of the ultimate traits of authentic leadership. When somebody trusts you, that much, even though they may not understand it completely, but the trust is there and they feel so safe and secure that it, it is the right move for them and it was a developmental move and it was. You know, I learned a lot, some good things, some not so good things. But yes, I would agree, it's getting this idea of, of safety is yeah. so important. Well, you remember the boss that we had, Gary Toomey? Yeah. 
Um, you know, if anybody had high expectations, it was Gary. Um, you know, I, I think the guy was, was a genius, you know, bordering on the insane to some, some respects. Um, but he was able to get out of people what nobody else was able to accomplish. And he was able to get people to perform at levels higher than they ever thought was possible. And that was including me. But I also knew that while he was expecting me to perform miracles, he was there ready to support me in the event that I failed. And so I think it's really, really important that you're not afraid to fail, that you don't not try things because you think, one, that you're not going to succeed or that you're going to be embarrassed or that people are going to laugh at you because you didn't accomplish what they believed you should have accomplished. Be willing to put yourself out there. Be willing to take a risk. And if you fail, you at least you've learned from it. You haven't failed in the true sense because you're going to be a better person for doing it than if you had not done it. So that's the way I think about it. And I think of Gary Toomey as something that really, you know, gave me that capability probably more than anybody. Yes. Not being afraid to fail is very important when you're creating an environment when you're trying to nurture and encourage innovation. Because innovation, by definition, is trying and failing and trying and failing. How do you create that environment and encourage innovation? You've spent enough time in Silicon Valley now. You know, you have a history with automotive, but you also know the Silicon Valley kind of culture. How do you create an innovation type of environment? Yeah. So to me, you know, people think of innovation as people just dreaming stuff up and going out and trying to do it. But to me, there's a lot of structure, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of structure and discipline needed around innovation. You know, first of all, you need an idea. Obviously, you need the idea. Um, but then you've got to decide how are we actually going to cultivate the idea and make that idea a reality, and how do you actually execute on it? And so to do that, you have to turn that idea into a strategy. So, you know, we were looking at setting up an innovation center, for example, in San Francisco. And we had a great idea of how we'd be able to compete against a lot of the smaller companies to give customers fast turnaround and to provide them with a source of competence they wouldn't be able to get necessarily from somewhere else. But what we didn't do is really understand what that source of competence needed to be. We didn't understand what expectations those customers had. We didn't understand the level of rigor that we tr traditionally expected to get from, from suppliers or customers, and that that wasn't available from them. We, you know, we didn't have the right contracts in place because they didn't have lawyers to review contracts who were 13, 14 pages long. Right? They needed something on one sheet. So you have to, even if you're going to innovate, you actually have to take a step back, take the idea, but then have a real clear strategy on how you intend to execute against it. And we've had a couple of examples where we've been really successful in Flex in doing that. Uh, one was a software startup that we incubated inside uh, that we ultimately spun off called Bright Insight that you know, literally started with an idea of how do you provide uh, a, a, um, a medical-grade IoT platform for healthcare devices so you can actually con connect any device that provides data back either to the patient, to the caregiver, or even to the pharma companies. And so we started with that idea, but then we had a clear strategy on how we intended to execute it. We had it you know, laid out in five to six phases. Every phase, we sat back and, and assessed and made sure we were on track. Um, and then before we moved on to the next phase. So it was a rigorous discipline process, even though it was innovative. And obviously, the next key is making sure that you select uh, the right leadership team. Uh, and the right leadership team is committed to accomplish that, but also is committed to following the process that you put in place. I think that, as you all well know, a lot of automotive tier one companies all have innovation on their agenda. 
Some understand it at a very deep level, a deep and meaningful level, and realize that it's more than just creating the next widget. There's a lot more to it than that. But others still see it as a, well, I'm just going to give it to my VP of R&D or engineering, and you handle innovation. But it's, it's a part of your culture. It has to be for you to succeed. What advice would you give to perhaps a tier one CEO that might be listening today um, how to embrace innovation and really make it a reality and not just another agenda item? I think one of the big challenges for <clears throat> excuse me, for existing companies with innovation is what Clay Christensen called the innovator's dilemma. Um, you know, so I have a big business today that's in uh, making parts for internal combustion engines, and we know over time internal combustion engines will be replaced by electric vehicles. So I need to make the switch to my business and invest in something new. But if I have to report to the street quarterly and I still have to make my numbers, you know, and I still have obligations to my existing customers and shareholders, I'm often faced with a conflict. So I think you really have to take a step back and say, look, how do I actually find a way to do both? How do I find a way to sustain the current business? Because I've got to protect the core, but at the same time continue to invest in new areas of growth. And you have to be pretty selective about how you do that. I mean, if you try and, you know, you can talk about autonomy, there's various elements of autonomy. There's the, you know, the compute side, there's the sensor LIDAR, camera side, and, you know, sensor fusion. Um, there's the, you know, connectivity to the cloud, right? There's various elements of, of that technology that are required to be successful. And you can't do everything. So if you're going to focus on the hardware, focus on the hardware. If you're going to focus on the software, Focus on the software. Don't try and, and be all things to all people. And I think as you're seeing some companies trying to do everything, they're struggling with the financial capability to be able to support that, as well as being able to hire and retain the talent that's needed to do that. So I just think if you know you have to make that change, but you have to be very selective and disciplined in how you do that. Mm, that's good advice. So let's talk about the talent aspect for a moment. We hear the term millennials, which is a broad term. And now, of course, we have Gen Z coming into the workplace. What do you do to attract this new generation? So, you know, I actually, sometimes I think we pamper millennials too much. Uh, and I worry less about how do we attract uh, Gen Z or how do we attract millennials or how, how do we retain uh, millennials or Gen Zs. It's about really how do we actually attract and retain the best talent regardless of what generation they're from. Um, and so to me, I think a key part of doing that is having a company that's values-driven, right? That people, when they come to work for you, they know that you have an objective beyond just making, uh, you know, the right financial re returns for your shareholders. You have a commitment to the community. You have a commitment to your employees. You have a commitment to ethics and governance, uh, you know, you have a commitment to the environment that you really focused not just on serving the shareholders, but you're focused on on protecting and um, <clears throat> serving all all stakeholders. Uh, and I think that again has to be authentic. There have to be examples of where you've done that. It's not just a marketing campaign, uh, you know, or a publicity campaign. People actually need to come into the organisation and see that you're doing that. That you have an organisation that's focused on inclusivity that's focused on gender equality and equality in all ways. Uh, I think that's what attracts people. You know, ultimately, you know, you want to have a, a workplace that's fun and, you know, where people treat each other with dignity and respect 
and you know you know your own uh, op- your your own um, capability is valued and and you know rewarded. Uh, but I think people generally want to work for an ethical company that sees their objectives being more than just making money for shareholders. And I think if you do that, whether it's millennials or Gen Z or any other generation, you will attract and retain the right people. Yeah, I think there's a definite shift in consciousness. People connect with purpose more now than ever before. There seems to be a real shift in consciousness. And it's much more than just the metrics. It's much more than just an ROI. And that puts more on the leader to be able to articulate a vision like never before. Uh, Certainly when I grew up in the automotive industry, I couldn't care less about purpose. I, I really couldn't. I just wanted to know, I wanted a job, I wanted career progression, and I wanted a salary. I, I couldn't care what, what the widget was. It just didn't even, wasn't even a thought that came across my mind. But we're in a vastly different time now. So this ability to tell a story and connect people to a vision is much more important than it ever was before. What advice would you give leaders that are out there, whether they're a CEO looking at their entire leadership team or just a, maybe a mid-level director or manager trying to connect a team, a group of people around their vision and really inspire this team. Any thoughts or any piece of, pieces of advice that you could give them? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I can give an example, I think a lot of it is creating a vision and a purpose that's beyond just what you're doing every day at work. Um, so if you think of the automotive industry, um, you, you know, you, you we could make anything in automotive. Uh, but we chose to focus on three areas in particular, autonomy, connectivity, uh, and electrification. And you can argue a lot of people are doing the same thing because that's where the growth is going to come from. But what we did is we took it back to some of the global megatrends and the challenges that the world's faced with zero accidents. You're going to get more congestion in cities, right? So you're going to get more pollution. You're going to get more accidents, um, you know, you've, you've got a concern with uh, the environment and global warming. So how do you connect your automotive strategy with those larger global problems? So when you're talking to people about, yeah, we're going to make, you know, battery backup systems, or we're going to make DC-DC converters, or we're actually going to focus on developing autonomous compute solutions, why is it that we've actually chosen to do that? Yes, of course, we've chosen to do that because we think there's growth and margin potential there, but also because we actually think we're helping to solve some of the great problems that the world is currently facing or continue to face over time. So there's a connection to the world outside of work. And then when you start to think about how do you actually address the best possible solutions you know that you're doing it with an impact beyond just the impact, as I said, to shareholders. You're doing it to a much broader impact to the community, um, you know, to the employees and to your commitment to, you know, improve the world. That's, I think that's great advice. So you're a leader, you've inspired a team. And then, of course, we've all had the experience where there's that toxic employee who also happens to be the high performer. We've all been there. We've all had to deal with that person. How would you guide a leader today who was 
faced with that situation. The reason I ask you this very specific question, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day and said, you know, nobody talks about this. And I think they do. Um, Gary Vaniacek talks a lot about it. I follow him from a marketing perspective on social media. And, and he says, you know, you just do not tolerate. You need to just get rid of that person immediately. But it's easy to say that, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. So what advice would you give a leader that was had to deal with a toxic employee that was really... Um, ruining the culture of the organization, but yet was achieving all the numbers and the goals. Yeah, you know, Flex used to have a saying, it's all about results. And I became to re- began to realize it's not just all about the results, it's also how you accomplish those results. So the behavior, particularly of leadership, is incredibly critical and actually affects the behavior of the rest of employees. So if you can't lead by example, or you have leaders on your team that can't lead by example, you have to deal with that. And, and and don't adhere to, you know, the company's values and principles. You can't ignore that. You can't say, well, they're a good performer, let them get away with it, because that just permeates the whole organization. Uh, and, you know, and basically what it does is people then don't believe what you say anymore, right? So you actually lose the focus and the benefit from having a values-driven or a purpose-driven organization in the first place. So, but you know, do you, are you going to fire that person straight away? The answer is, I don't think so. What I think you do is you sit down with them, you explain to them what is, is about their behavior that needs to change. You help them potentially by getting them a coach, right? By holding them accountable, giving them the chance to, to change and to improve. It may not be that often that that will happen, but at least you're giving the person the best possible opportunity to modify their behavior to be effective. And if after that it doesn't work, then you have to get rid of them. And so to me, you know, whether that's the the style of leadership or whether it's being collaborative or being a team player, it doesn't matter how smart you are and doesn't matter how competent you are. If you can't operate as a member of a team, if you can't collaborate, if you can't engage with others, you actually have no value to the organization whatsoever. So to me, yes, you have to deal with it, but you have to give them an opportunity to improve first. Yeah, I see a lot of people struggle with that, but uh, I've learned certainly over the last, you know, several years that you have to deal with it. And when you deal with it, the respect level shoots up. You know, people really respect the fact that as a leader, you you made a difficult decision and you took some action. Yeah, I I mean, I think if you don't do that, then you're going to lose the respect of all the people who are behaving in an appropriate manner and who are providing you know, providing leadership that the rest of the organization admires and respects. If you don't deal with the person that isn't doing that, then you're basically not being true to yourself. And that goes back to, you know, authentic leadership, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about this idea of being a workaholic and working number long, long hours. We see organizations that where it's like a badge of honor that they work, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week, you know, and they're proud to say, I haven't used any of my vacation time. You know, you often see that, right? Some guy will say, well, yeah, I've only taken, you know, two days of my four weeks this year, right? And somehow that's a badge of honor. And um, of course, we all want to work hard and we're all proud of the work that we do. But that's not really the way to lead and to lead your life. We talk about life leadership as well as leadership in the professional realm. So what are your thoughts around that? So, so I mean, it's, you know, work-life balance means different things to different people. And you as an individual have to decide what that work-life balance is. And, and you know, that may work in some organizations and it may not work in others. And so, 
you know, you have to be comfortable that the organization that you work in is going to give you the work-life balance that you're looking for. But to me, it's not about I work so many hours a day and then I relax or I you know, have personal time so many hours a day. It's getting to the point where they're intermingled, right? So, you know, I'll take myself as an example. I work long hours, I work hard, I travel a lot. Uh, but I try and, and, you know, spend the time that's needed to take care of my health, just take care of my family. Uh, you know, I, I, like, I like to race cars. Um, you know, I like to have fun with my friends. Um, but it's not I'll do it for, I'll, I mean, work for eight hours a day. And then, you know, I'll, I'll have leisure for the rest of the time. I might go for a drive with my friends first thing in the morning and then go to work after that. I may end up, you know, leaving on a lunchtime and going out and going to the gym for an hour um, I may even take take a call from the gym, right? So you know, I'm I'm again I'm combining the time that I need to take care of my health, also with the time to take care of my role. Um, and you know, maybe I leave work at five in the evening because I've got a, got a, an appointment or a commitment. But then I'm doing emails at nine ten o'clock of the night because I want to make sure that I can get done what I needed to do that day before uh, before I go to bed. So it's not about it's to me, work-life balance is, is not like it used to be. It's not like, well, I can only work out eight hours a day. You know, I grew up in a union environment, as, and same as you did, uh, where people only worked so many hours a day, and after that they didn't do anything else regarding work. I don't think it's like that anymore. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you know, work-life balance is, is a personal choice, and, and you can't dictate for people what that choice is. They have to decide that for themselves, and then they have to decide whether the environment they're working in suits and fits with that need. I agree with you. I think it's a bit of a myth. Right, that there's this some magical balance or number, and sometimes you hear people are chasing this. Oh, you know, I have better work-life balance at this company because I don't have to work X hours a day. And I think that those choices change at different phases in your life too. Absolutely. I know that as a working mother, as a single mother with a very intense automotive job in my last corporate role with a heavy travel schedule. And I can honestly say that I didn't miss one school event or event that my daughter was in because it was a choice that I made. And there are times in that choice was in favor of family. And there were times when that choice was in favor of my job. And you have to get comfortable with the idea that maybe I'm going to make a choice towards my family and I'm not going to put in that extra hour or two hours so that that PowerPoint presentation is perfect. But it's a choice that you make. Absolutely. And uh, it, you're right. It's different for everyone. I think it changes at different parts, at different points in your life. I know that for me right now, physical fitness is one of the core values. And I cannot even think about doing anything else in the morning until there's some form of physical activity. My physical activity in the morning is getting out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a difference. There's a difference between a job and a career, too, right? Yes. You know, and and so if I'm working on a shop floor and I'm doing, and I'm going to say that, but you're doing the same thing day in, day out, day in, day out, right? You know, you you can't wait to get the hell out of work. But if you're in a career where you you have uh, an inspiring environment around you and a role that you you enjoy and you're contributing and it's valuable, then work isn't really work right work is part of your life and you enjoy doing that as much as you enjoy spending time doing other things you're so right and you talk about being an inspiring leader you know many years ago when I started working for you it was my first year at Borg Warner and I don't think I wasn't even a full-time employee I was a temp I think and 
um, I was working as a material control expediter and I wanted to get a handle on some schedules for a marine industrial launch and it was going to take time away from day-to-day production. I would have to focus. So I came into the plant because in those days you didn't have a laptop, you couldn't work from home. I came into the plant every day for a week during shutdown, unpaid. And people thought I was out of my mind. But to me, I wanted to be that it was my choice because I wanted to do this thing that was going to really take us to the next level. So when I came back, you know, I had this spreadsheet already done and we would be able to schedule it differently. And I was so excited about it. But that's because I was inspired by you and the leadership team at that company to want to do more. And that's really what it's all about, right? It's connecting to the hearts and minds of people so that you really tap into that passion and energy. When I launched this business, I I don't have the traditional, you know, uh, day markers, you know, the, the, the agenda and the things that you do in a corporate role, right? Because it's my business, it's my job, I can get up at four o'clock in the morning, I get up at four o'clock in the afternoon if I wanted to. What I find interesting, and this is a process of discovery for myself, I still have the same relationship and mindset to work that I had when I was in the corporate role. I still get up at 4.30 in the morning. I still like to go to the 5 a.m. workout class and I work in line with my energy flow. So when my energy is really strong, I take on something big. But when my energy is sort of waning a little bit, I may run some errands or go do do something else or do some day-to-day, maybe some email. Um, It just, it gives me the ability to work more in line with my energy flow. But my relationship, my mindset to work has not changed at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Very interesting. Okay, let's talk a little bit about giving back. I know that you're on the board of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation. What's that all about? So it's a not-for-profit. I've actually been on the board for 12 years. I was chairman for six years. I just recently gave up the chairman's role, um, but I'm still on the executive committee, and I chair the development committee, which is basically the fundraising committee. Um, and being frank, it started when I was in HR in Flex. Um, it didn't start necessarily as a, as a personal um, um, venture. It was it was something that was related to work. Um, but what I found is is... You know, we actually were making a, a big difference in the lives of a lot of young people. Um, so we focus on after-school and summer school programs for underserved kids. So kids who, you know, generally are uh, the children of immigrants. Um, you know, they're lowest socioeconomic. Um, you know, they they um, you know have struggled at school, so they're you know basic or below basic. Um, and so what we do is we take them through uh, programs in math. Um, so over the summer, we provide 75 hours of additional training. And then we have follow-up programs during the school year. Uh, we train about 300 teachers every year um, to actually deliver um, the math uh, learning because a lot of teachers, and particularly in California, that are math teachers don't necessarily have a math education. You know, they might be um, you know, liberal arts students, etc. So... Um, we make sure the teachers are better equipped as well, and then we provide a whole different set of you know, learning pedagogy so that they um, are not just stuck in a classroom and they're going through rote learning. It's you know uh, we use uh, gaming technology, we use online learning, we use classroom learning, we use project-based learning, and and you know we have a significant 
impact on those kids. About 83% of the kids that go through the program actually do much better going into uh, eighth grade. Uh, we've trained over 30,000. Uh, we've we've uh, put about 30,000 students through the program over the last 10 years, and a lot of them are doing exceptionally well. Um, and so, you know, I've just recognized the value that we bring not just to the community and to the students themselves, but also in terms of creating a pipeline of talent for the companies that are in Silicon Valley. These are kids that might otherwise not have succeeded at school and are now you know, gone and succeeding in careers and college as a result of the work that we do. We also do advocacy work. Um, so we advocate on behalf of, of, of the students and we do tech in the classroom. So we're bringing technology into the classroom to help to facilitate a better learning experience for the kids. And it's something I've gone to the point where I actually love doing it. Um, you know, I've learned a lot myself through this process. I've made a lot of good friends, but I also see the value that we're having, you know, particularly in certain areas of Silicon Valley that, that you know, are struggling socioeconomically. Mm. Okay, that's great. Um, looking back, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self in today's environment, knowing what you know today? So, you know, I think the, the one thing I've learned, and I, you know, I just reached a, a milestone. I just um, had my 65th birthday. Um, and I think the one thing that I think more than anything is you're on a never-ending learning path. You know, don't think at 25 that you know it all, or you have all the answers, or there isn't, you know, I've been through university and I've got my undergrad and I got my master's and, you know, now I can conquer the world. Um, you're going to be learning something every day, but you need to be open to that learning and you need to recognize that you're going to improve you know, literally every day of your life. And so I think to me that's a really, really important part is, is, is make sure you're always open to learn more and you're willing to put in the effort to learn more. Um, you know, I think the other thing too is, is you know, particularly if you've trained as, as as an engineer or a scientist, or is you know, the hard stuff is not really the hard stuff; it's the soft stuff. It's how you work with people. It's you know, having empathy, having uh, the ability to inspire others to be effective, uh, being supportive of others, being collaborative, being team oriented. It's not necessarily about you. It's about how you work with others and how you relate to others and the contribution that you can make to a team. And so as I think back over my career, you know, I've, I've tried to do that. Uh, I'm sure I haven't succeeded um, wholeheartedly or, or, you know, all the time. Um, but those are the learnings that I've had in my life that I think are applicable to my 25-year-old self and the things that I would, you know, encourage any 25-year-old to think about. Yes, I know that when I look back, uh, when I was 25, I was pretty sure I knew it all, knew it all and you tried to help me see that I didn't <laughs> very nicely. <laughs> but one thing that I remember that stuck with me over all these years is that, you know, as, a, as a, a young woman in automotive, all excited about a career and taking on all these different challenges that you would throw my way, if I encountered difficulty with somebody... I would run to you, you know, and I would say, well, this guy said this or did this and did that. And you trained me very early on. You would say to me, and have you sat down and talked to him about it? And, you know, you only have to do that a couple of times. And it's just, it sounds so simple, but it had such an impact because it taught me 
to have the conversation, right? To not not run away from it and not judge, but to really take a moment to understand the other person's position. And I see so many relationships today in the working environment that fall apart because people don't take the time to listen to the other person's position and find a solution. And you trained me to do that very, very early on. And it's funny, but that stuck with me over three decades. I'm glad that you learned something from me. That's good. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Okay, so as we uh, come close to, um, well, I hate to say the end of a career because I don't know, I can't even imagine you ending your career. No, I'm not ending my career. No, 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 no. But what is your legacy? What do you want to leave behind you? You know, I think more than anything um, is that I've created a direction or a sense of purpose Um for the people that, that work for me and, and for the organization that I work in. Uh, and when I eventually move on, I've left a team of people that will not only carry that on, but improve it over time. Um, you know, again, it's really not about me. Um, you know, I don't necessarily want to be remembered for me. I would like to be remembered though for somebody who, you know, had a tremendous passion and commitment to the business, uh, did what they thought was right and built a team that was able to continue doing that. Um, and again, as I said, you know, improve upon it as appropriate. Yeah, and that's a great legacy to have. Well, I think that we may have to provide some sort of uh, explanation as to how to spell Flanathli, and I'm not sure that people will understand all of this podcast with two strong Welsh accents. Just call it Sospen. <laughs> But it has been um, an honor and a pleasure to have Paul Humphreys on the show today, uh, a man who has influenced my leadership style and my career, and as we said earlier, my very first boss. So, Paul, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Jan, as always. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.